According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Sometimes you just, sometimes you just need a hug. All right. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs 18. Join me once again in Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18. Um, last week we were talking about knowledge and we took an entire hour to go through the uses of da'ath that are found, uh, such as in verse 15 where it says, the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And uh, it's used twice in that verse. It's the only place in Proverbs where it is used twice. And uh, the importance of knowledge, 89 times in the Old Testament, including 39 times in the book of Proverbs, which was a surprise to me as I explained last week. I wouldn't have guessed that. But it's huge. It's very important that we understand we're not going to get wisdom apart from knowledge. Knowledge is the foundation. It's the bedrock upon which wisdom is built. And so uh, if you try to uh, obtain wisdom without knowledge, you're uh, looking for a shortcut that's not there because then the knowledge of the Word of God is essential to true wisdom. And so we spent last week doing that. For today, we're going to move on to 16, 17, 18. We've got a trio of verses that all uh, are kind of political, really. Political verses, economic verses, social verses, uh, centered on legal situations. Um, and uh, so we'll deal with that. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking for our Father's blessing upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth, rejoicing, Father, that we have once again the blessing to assemble, the blessing to study. So we call upon your faithfulness, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, to open the eyes of our understanding. Teach us and feed us, Father. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Verse 16 of Proverbs 18 says, A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. The, uh, I'm going to read 16, 17, 18, and you kind of see how these are linked conceptually. Uh, all in the realm of, of social life, in the realm of politics, in the realm of, of, of legal proceedings. So a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. The lot cast, or the cast lot, puts an end to strife and decides between the mighty ones. All right, so there they are. Uh, each one we can, of course, teach independently. We can teach all three of them together. Uh, it does form a nice little triplet, though, uh, conceptually as we, as we approach them. So starting with a man's gift. A man's gift. And if you want to track this, let's see. Did I do the right one? I did the wrong one. Let's try this one. There we go. So this is point six in the outline. Uh, verses 16 through 18 are concerned with political slash legal situations. Political slash legal situations, more or less. And they don't have to be in, uh, in a political realm, don't have to be in a legal realm. Um, and then we'll examine each one of these verses in, in any situation, really. Uh, but uh, as far as that goes, starting now with verse 16, dealing with gift-giving. Gift-giving opens doors and makes introductions. 
Gift-giving opens doors and makes introductions. That's how life works. That's how this world operates. Gift-giving opens doors and makes introductions. In the A part of it, uh, you see the, uh, how it makes room, how it, uh, it broadens the opportunity. It opens doors, we would say. And then bringing him before great men. That's the introduction. You uh, have an opportunity to, uh, to interact with somebody that you wouldn't have the opportunity to interact with otherwise, but for the fact that you provided the gift. Now, uh, most commentaries immediately go to the bribery angle here and discuss the nature of um, blackmail or bribing your way into something and so forth. And you can see that in the text, but you don't have to see that in the text. And I think uh, this verse in particular, there's other verses that are more explicit with that, and there's other Hebrew terms that are more explicit than that. This is simply gift-giving. This is, um, this is matthan in the Hebrew. It's where the name, my brother's name, Matthew, comes from. And Matthew is a gift, uh, specifically a gift from God. And so that noun, that matthan noun uh, in the Hebrew simply speaks of a gift. And it doesn't have to be a bribe. And it doesn't have to be a gift with strings attached. It's just sim- the vocabulary itself simply means a gift. Uh, in the context, we'll determine whether or not we, we expect something for the gift. If we think there's a, a quid pro quo arrangement or we think that there's something that we, we want back uh, kind of a thing. So it's not necessarily a bribe, but it does fall within the same realm of social transactions. That is, you have something, you give something to somebody else, and uh, the appreciation then may or may not reflect the gift. So gift-giving opens doors and makes introductions. Not only do we see it here, uh, it'll come back again in uh, chapter 19. We have it in a lot of contexts. Uh, Proverbs 19 and verse 6. Many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to the gift-giver, to him who gives gifts. And uh, you can become very popular if you develop this reputation uh, for being generous, for being a gift giver. If you're the kind of guy that just loves to give presents away, you're the kind of guy that just, or, or girl, the kind of person that just is very uh, generous, very gracious, very giving, uh, then that reputation will spread and uh, there will be no shortage of people that will then come to seek your favor and, uh, and or want to be your friend. You know, and then if uh, your name shows up in the newspaper because you won the Publishers Clearinghouse or the Texas State Lottery or whatever, you'll find you're going to have friends you didn't even know you had. You know, old time friends from years back will start showing up. Family members from distant family reunions will start showing up because uh, because you've got something and uh, and, and they want something. So uh, in verse six, I think uh, in Proverbs nineteen six. I think that the approach to this is more uh, related to other people and how they interact with the gift giver. Uh, I don't see any bribery in this verse at all. You don't have to have bribery automatically connected with any gift giving. Uh, sometimes you're just giving a gift because you, you, you're generous and you want to give gifts. Uh, other times, of course, you do have nefarious methods. In uh, Genesis 34, you've got the lovesick... Um, Shechem here, and the, it's an ugly story, but um, not every component is ugly. Genesis 34 and verse 12. 
<clears throat> now the introduction to this is is ugly with Dinah and uh, uh, she goes out to visit the daughters of the land and then in verse 2 when Shechem the son of Hamor the Hivite the prince of the land saw her he took her and he lay with her by force and so that's the blunt reality of it he raped the girl and there's no excusing of that but then it says in verse 3 that he was deeply attracted to Dinah the daughter of Jacob and he loved the girl and he spoke tenderly to her. Now this also, if we're going to accept verse 2 on face value, we've got to accept verse 3 on face value. This is the Word of God, and God's not a liar. Okay, And it's curious to me, just like we're not going to make excuses for verse 2, we're going to be blunt with it because this, the text is blunt with it, neither are we going to dispute the facts of verse 3. And too many commentaries do that, and too many people do that. They uh, They can't believe that the boy would have a regret or that the boy would change his heart or that the boy would possibly love her. How could he possibly love her? He just raped her kind of a thing. Okay, And I admit it's difficult to envision, but it says this is the truth. And so uh, he, uh, he was deeply attracted to her. He spoke tenderly to her and uh, he loves her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this young girl for a wife. Again, people have a problem with that. They don't want him to marry her. They want him executed. They want him dead because he, he's a rapist. All right. Anyway, so Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah's daughter, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. And a problem on Jacob's part, he should have dealt with it right away and not involved the boys at all. So Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not be done. Ought not be done. And it's interesting that the objection isn't necessarily for the rape. uh, Disgraceful thing in Israel. It seems like it's normal practice among the Canaanites, uh, but uh, such a thing ought not be done in Israel. Anyway, verse 8, Hamor spoke with him saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. And, and as far as turning cursing into blessing and all things working together for good and making the best of a bad situation, um, that uh, you know he could marry and, and move forward into their marriage. All right. What comes with this, though, are the gifts. And that's what I'm headed for, the gifts of verse 12. So uh, intermarry with us, give your daughters to us, take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. And Shechem also said to her father and her brothers, if I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. This is like a blank check. You know, and, and in the interactions of the ancient world marriage is a business arrangement between families and clans and the arrangements uh between fathers to arrange the marriage of their daughters to uh to uh to 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 the boys there involves a a payment involves bride uh prices and it involves dowries and involves gifts and uh here it's write your check what what do you want any amount okay 
And the, the amount would be variable under normal circumstances. Under the best of circumstances, the amount would be variable, uh, depending on whether it was to be a wife, to be a concubine, was a cheaper deal, to be a, um, uh, of course, a non-virgin would be really, um, I don't want to say discount, but it would be really, um, maybe discount's the only word I can think of, <laughs> for a non-virgin, for a girl that had been defiled, for um, she's not going to get a better offer later in life. This is because of what he did to her. Anyway, we, we, we struggle to relate to this. It's not our culture. Um, but he says, name your price. If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and then gift. In the matthan there is the gift. And I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. Give me. This is Shechem saying, give me the girl in marriage. And the rest of the chapter gets even uglier because there's a massacre that uh, happens here on the part of these boys. Well, gift giving. It opens doors. It makes introductions. Uh, One more example. It's not on the slide, but back to uh, Abraham and the servant he sent to obtain a wife for Isaac. Notice um, the gifts that are provided and what the servant does. And the servant in Genesis uh, 24.10, the servant took 10 camels from the camels of his master, set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. These are the gifts that he's going to be providing. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in the Hebrews class. And um, he meets uh, Rebecca, and she, uh, he asks for water, and she offers to water the camels also, which was his prayer request. That was the code that he was looking for in uh, the answers to his prayers. And after she uh, does this, Notice in verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing 10 shekels of gold. This is a huge gift. You don't just give a girl this at random on the street and say, uh, you know, there's, there's something, you want something with a gift like this. And he said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is the room for us to lodge in your father's house? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. No, no, she doesn't have any problem taking the ring, taking the bracelets, accepting the gifts. All right. And then uh, they go through and they arrange for the marriage. And and, uh, verse 30, when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, this is what the man said to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And uh, so the gifts get his attention. <laughs> you know, you go, wow, that's the biggest engagement ring I ever saw. That kind of thing. Um, anyway, there's more. There's the hospitality. There's the, the rest of this here food that's set before him. And then there's the arrangements that get made. So... If you want a, a good chapter for a, a positive example on uh, arranged marriages and the, the deal there, that's the better chapter. Chapter 24 is better than chapter 34 for that. All right, now, such gifts are not necessarily bribes, but they do fall within that same realm of social transaction. So when you do look at Proverbs 17, for example, 
and in verse 8, it's very quickly, it's, it's identified as a bribe. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. And that's clearly a bribe. That's not a gift, that's a bribe. Different Hebrew word. And in uh, chapter 21, we have both of them in the same verse. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Remember when we taught that back in chapter 17. Bribes work. And the fact that they work is not licensed to use them. (laughs) The fact that if you are going to be a perverter of justice, that won't be pleasing in the eyes of the God of truth and the God of justice. And so even though bribery works, and even though the unbelievers do it all the time, and even though you feel like you maybe have to in order to compete with whatever else is going on, um, Proverbs does not sanction the illegitimate use of bribery in any way, even though Proverbs 17.8 says that they are effective, they do work. Uh, Chapter 21 and verse 14. And this one's very clear because it uses both in, in juxtaposition. Proverbs 21 and verse 14. A gift in secret subdues anger, and a bribe in the bosom strong wrath. So in, in that poetry, you'll see that they're two different things. You'll see that there's a progression between them because uh, anger might be one thing, but strong wrath is much more intense. And that a gift may not be effective if the strong wrath is, is strong enough. And at that point, you may have to give a bribe as your only way out because uh, a gift isn't going to cut it. But you'll notice that gift and bribe are different things. And that the gift is less than the bribe, at least in the intensity of what it can subdue. All right. But still falling within the same realm of social transactions. So what are we talking about in terms of social transactions? We're talking about people. We're talking about people and the, um, shall we say, the, uh, the giving of assets, if you will, the transfer of property. And when it comes right down to it, how can human beings uh, transa- conduct transactions? We can do so willfully or unwillfully. We can do so volitionally or against our will. And uh, you can either uh, steal something or uh, you can uh, give something. You can voluntarily exchange, which is the best of all worlds because then it's two parties, each one is voluntarily giving. And that free exchange of giving, what we, we, we call the basic fundamentals of capitalism, is that, uh, uh, is that you know I want the gallon of milk, H-E-B wants $3, and so it's a win-win. And uh, I give them what they want, they give me what I want, and we both walk away from the transaction having profited. We both walk away from the transaction departing with something of greater value than what we considered we went into the transaction with. That's a win-win. Because to me, the, the gallon of milk I walked away with was worth more than the $3 I parted with. Okay? If I could have gotten away with $2, I would have. Or $1, I would have. See, I wouldn't have paid $10. If they wanted $10, I would have said, no, that's not worth it. And I would have gone to a different store and, and paid a price I thought was worth it. The, but the fact is, when you part with your, your, your hard-earned dollars and you do so voluntarily, you do so willfully, then you're gonna get your, 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 you do so because you want to. Because you make the determination that the thing you're buying uh, 
is worth more than the money you're parting with. And same thing with the seller. If the seller, if it's not worth it to the seller, he's not going to sell it for that. He's not going to sell it for that. He's going to sell it, if, if it's too low of a price, he won't sell it for that because it's not worth it to him. And so those relative scales of value as far as what you think is worth becomes a voluntary payment. And that's the win-win. That's marvelous. That's much better than just might makes right and you go steal what you want. All right, that's not... Uh, <laughs> um, but, but really, is there, is there any other way for property to pass from one person to another person? It's either voluntary or involuntary. And uh, when it comes right down to it. Anyway, the, um, there's other aspects on that too when it comes to the bargaining and the acting like, oh, bad, bad, says the seller. And he, acting like, uh, I really shouldn't be selling it this low. And, and, but, but then when he walks away from it, he's laughing because he got more than he was hoping to, hoping to get. All right, but it's a social transaction. And the idea of giving gifts, not only is it useful in, in, in an economy, but the, the blessings of just giving something away freely because you want to is, uh, is an imitation of the Father. It's an imitation of God's grace. It's a marvelous thing to be a gift giver, to be a generous person, uh, to, and, and to ask for nothing in return. That's a, that's a joy. It is more blessed to give than to receive, and it's a joy to be a giver. Because this is what imitates our fathers, what imitates God. If we're in God's image, then imitating Him should be uh, a positive thing that uh, that we would like to do. And you'll notice the uh, even when you're not asking for anything in return, the uh, the attitudinal return is sometimes priceless. The fact is is that. Um, that the generous person is usually on much better terms with his uh, friends and neighbors and and uh, associates and and whatnot than 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 the Ebenezer Scrooge kind of guy who uh, you know his neighbors uh, they don't get along well and they're they're not pleasant interactions and and uh, the the curmudgeon is not as as uh, welcome in uh, in a social setting from the from the generous person as it were. Anyway, more things on that. On to verse 17 then. First impressions can be great impressions, but they may not withstand follow-up scrutiny. First impressions can be great impressions, but may not withstand follow-up scrutiny. And this is true in politics. This is true in uh, legal uh, proceedings. This is true in social life. This is true in everything. And so Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The first to plead his case seems right. That's the first impression. And if you're pleading a case in uh, court, uh, the first impression, I mean, if, if the prosecutor is putting his case on and he lays it all out there and it all is overwhelming... And the jurors might sit there, the judge might sit there and go, wow, what a, what a criminal, you know, or whatever. The evidence, because it's the first impression and it's the first and only evidence that's been submitted. Then you get the cross-examination, <laughs> okay? And then the defense attorney gets to ask follow-up questions. It gets to say, well, you know, you said this, but what about this? And, and you get to start poking holes in some of the testimony and you get to and then 
not only do you get a cross-examination, but then the defense gets to, to present their affirmative defense. And then the jurors are thinking by the time that's over with, wow, it's an entirely different case than it was before the defense even put on his argument. So that's in the, that's in the, um, in the legal field, right? In a judicial proceeding. Same thing, though, in a political proceeding. Same thing in an election. Same thing with a politician. And, uh, you know, you, you, you watch a TV commercial and go, wow, that's marvelous. <laughs> Look what they're promising. They're promising all these things, and it's all free. Well, then the opponent, the political opponent, also puts out a TV commercial. <laughs> and, and then with some other data and facts, and go, oh, wait a minute. It's not all free, right? Because nothing's free. There's a price to be paid. Oh, wait a minute. You mean, you know, what, what are you not telling me? And you start to learn what the person wasn't telling you. And sometimes that speaks volumes too. So that's in the political realm. Could be all kinds of things too. In, in business, could be all kinds of things. In, uh, in uh, romantic relationships, you know, your first impression and, and, uh, and then you, you start learning more things and go, hmm, wait a minute, <laughs> this guy's not, uh, not uh, husband material here. You know, so anyway, I, I think there's a lot we could illustrate with this in, in terms of what Proverbs is saying, that the first to plead his case seems right, or might even be right for all we know, until another comes, and until a greater examination takes place. A greater examination takes place. So now here's a couple of my favorite stories I think that illustrate this really well. I think Ironside turned me on to these in, in, um, in, in, uh, if you have the Ironside commentary on Proverbs, I recommend it. But he pointed out a couple of these illustrations. So 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 4 is the first impression. And then uh, when the truth comes out, it's in uh, chapter 19. 2 Samuel 16. Now context for this, um, this is a very dark place in David's uh, kingdom. In fact, he's just lost his throne. And there's a rebellion. Uh, his son Absalom is uh, stealing the throne. And uh, Ahithophel is the counselor that is uh, advising him. And uh, the coup is successful. And David is on the run. He's running for his life. And um, so that's how chapter, that's all in chapter 15. Now chapter 16 gets started. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. And we know Mephibosheth from earlier chapters. He's the son of Jonathan. He's very dear to David. Uh, he's a cripple boy. He was, uh, he was um, uh, disabled and uh, born with a, with a disfigurement. And, or am I mixing him up with somebody else? Okay. He fell. Okay. But he is crippled. Doesn't run as fast as Zeba runs. All right. And, uh, yeah, I know when I get that puzzled look on Ethel's face, I'm probably, I'm probably wrong with what I'm preaching. Mephibosheth had crippled feet. He couldn't run. He just wasn't born that way. All right. But the point being, though, after the death of Jonathan, who David dearly loved, 
Jonathan, uh, David wanted to be a blessing to any of, of, jo- of Jonathan's house. And he wanted, and so he, uh, he, ble- he brought him in and fed him at his own table and he gave him a place of honor in, uh, in his house, which is powerful. Pagan kings don't do this. In the ancient world, if you're a pagan king, you absolutely obliterate the former house that you're replacing. You know, Mephibosheth is an heir of King Saul. Mephibosheth could make a claim himself if he wanted to as being uh, an heir of, of Saul through Jonathan. And uh, if, Dave, if David was pagan-minded, he would execute the, the cripple and, and not even think twice about it. So anyway, there's a lot of love there between David and Jonathan, and he expresses it towards Mephibosheth. That's the background for this. Now, the servant comes out, Ziba. Ziba's a liar. Ziba's a snake. Okay, But Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a jug of wine. Now this is a timely gift. Not only is it a marvelous gift in quantity and, and value, but the timing couldn't be better. <laughs> because who knows what, uh, what assets David has available to him in, in making his escape here. And the king said to Ziba, why do you have these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for whoever is faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. You see what he's saying there? That Mephibosheth is going to make his own play for the throne. That not only is Absalom staging a coup, but Mephibosheth believes that he's going to make his own play. He's going to make his own claim and restore the house of Saul, restore the throne back to the tribe of of Benjamin. So the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. In other words, he just uh, banished Mephibosheth and revoked his, uh, you know, seized all of his property and gave it to Ziba. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O my lord, the king. Anyway, that's the, uh, that's the first impression. That's the first to plead his case. And he may seem right. But then we turn over to chapter 19 and uh, we get the, uh, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey might say. Second Samuel uh, chapter 19. And... Um, Get down to uh, verse 20. So then, yeah, there's a lot of people that David comes face to face with upon his return. And um, including Shimei, that was another snake. Uh, but we'll get to Mephibosheth in verse 24. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. It was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So he answered, O oh my lord, the king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, because your servant is lame. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your sight." For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before the Lord, my lord, the king. Yet you set your servant among those who are ate at your table. 
what right do I have yet that I should complain anymore to the king? And uh, he's just leaving himself in, in David's hands. If you want to kill me, kill me. Because all that I have has been by your grace anyway. It's a, it's a, a neat testimony. All right. Uh, so that's one example. Another example is in the book of Acts, Acts 24. This is one of Paul's uh, trials. And you got verses 5 and 6 for the uh, first impression, the first testimony, and then you get verses 12 and 13. And so, uh, let's see here. Acts 24 1 says, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. And after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since by your previous reforms are being carried out for this nation, uh, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But uh, Verse 4, But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. So, all the flattery out of the way, now just one short, brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest. <laughs> I love that. We have, we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's what they would call the early Christians there. They viewed them as heretics, followers of a of a of a blasphemer, followers of a of a false Christ that they rightly crucified. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. All right, then we arrested him. Now the rest of this is a puzzle as far as the manuscript is concerned. So I'll leave uh, ver- the rest of verse 6, 7, and 8 out. Um, but then in verse 8, by examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. Well, goodness, that sounds pretty overwhelming. Let's go ahead and uh, execute him. He's guilty as charged. He is a real pest. <laughs> okay? But now... Um, comes the defense, and now comes the other side. Here comes the the rest to be considered. So when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, "Uh, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, do I serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked." In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. And after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation 
and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. So he's giving, you know, the rest of the story. And uh, anyway, through all of this, there's no uh, cause of guilt. There's no, um, no real issue to, uh, to escort him. And in fact, it becomes so pleasant having Paul around that he would go and have chats with him. He'd go and have talks as, uh, as it's spoken about here. All right. Anyway, there's more on that. So there's the first impression, and then there's the the follow-up scrutiny. Then verse 18. Random chance. Random chance, either by design or not, random chance often settles the biggest issues. Random chance often settles the biggest issues. Proverbs 18, 18. I think this is curious. I think it's a principle that wisdom literature portrays, whether by design or not. Here, if you're casting lots, well, then that's by design. But sometimes the die is cast and you didn't even cast it. Sometimes it's just chance that overtakes things. And uh, the circumstances and details of life, when, uh, you know, had they been different, how would history have been different? And uh, all of these things are, are, I think, a blessing for us to, to, uh, to center our hope in uh, the faithfulness of God. But random chance often settles the biggest issues. And this could be a way by which parties can resolve their differences uh, without going to war, uh, by leaving matters in the hands of God. The blessing that the Jewish people had, being that they were a theocracy, is that they could have a high priest inquire of the Lord with Urim and Thummim and get the verbal answers back, or they could settle things themselves within their tribes by not even uh, involving the high priest in any respects. They could go to their tribal elders and they could agree to settle things with the casting of lots. And the casting of lots was sanctioned. The casting of lots was valid in the theocracy of Old Testament Israel. I don't know that we would ever try to replicate that in Texas. <laughs> Even if two parties wanted to, I suppose they could. They could enter into an agreement. They could sign a contract. They could uh, have, have it notarized and have it witnessed that, uh, that they would uh, willingly accept the, uh, the outcome of a coin flip for something that they were disputing. And then they could uh, stand in the presence of an uh, of, uh, of, uh, impartial coin flipper. <laughs> you know, Probably that would be agreed upon in the contract also. And, uh, you know, and they, could, uh, they could stake the entire whatever, the entire business arrangement, the entire, you know, whatever it is they're going to do. And they could stake it on one flip of the coin. And if there were two believers that were doing it by faith in the sovereignty of God, that would be something to behold. I don't want to see that on pay-per-view. <laughs> I would want to watch that. And I would want to watch both parties humble themselves before the Lord God and accept the flip of the coin as the sovereignty of God at work. This, by the way, is the principle we taught uh, at the end of chapter 16 
Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. You flip a coin a thousand times, all 1,000 of those coin flips were determined by the sovereignty of God. Every one of them. There's no accident in God's plan. God leaves nothing to chance. God is not subject to chance. Probability and odds and chance, the things that we as relative creatures, we, uh, we try to designate, that's just our perspective of, of not having sovereign foreknowledge and control. God's in charge. All right. So you can imagine um, the, lot, the cast lot puts an end to strife. Can you put an end to strife with the casting of lots? Absolutely. You, you want to know how Joshua divided the land? He cast lots. And that ends the argument. There's no argument. We drew lots. This is your land grant. There's no argument. It ends the argument before it begins because the procedure was established ahead of time in the sovereignty of God. And deciding between mighty ones. That's better than single combat, isn't it? The Philistines had the idea that let's just have single combat. And of course they liked that idea because Goliath was, was on their side. <laughs> you know, They thought it was the greatest thing in the world until David showed up and then David knew better. All right. But other than single combat, other than uh, wh- how else could things be determined? Well, one option would be the drawing of lots. And if you think that's insane... Uh, do more. Do some more reading about the ancient world and how superstitious they were on um, the auspices, on the fates. They would leave themselves in the hands of the fates because they figured they were in the hands of the fates anyway. Even the gods were subject to the fates. That was a big difference. Pagan gods were subject to the fates. Uh, Zeus was thwarted a lot of times. You think, well, some god, if he gets thwarted by the fates, well, yeah. But this is why our god is so awesome. He's not subject to the fates. He is not trapped by things outside of his control. And so in the ancient world, the idea of, uh, do I surrender the city? Do I not surrender the city? That kind of thing, uh, they would leave to random, the drawing of lots, the, uh, the auspices of a, of, a, of a bird liver, you know, whatever. We should have thought of that this morning when we had that dead bird on the porch. We could have taken some auspices in, uh, by chopping it up and examining the entrails. That could have been... Anyway. All right. What am I talking about? I'm talking about random chance. We're almost out of time here. Uh, Pagan nations, they would rely upon chance. This is what saved the Jewish nation in the book of Esther. In Esther chapter 3, you remember this? When uh, Haman was going to exterminate the Jewish people. The, um, he's going to uh, get the king to sanction this and they're going to uh, murder the Jews. But the date for this is determined by lot, determined by what the Persians called pur, P-U-R. And so... Um, in the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month. And so you're casting the Pur, and it shows up 
All right, this is the day it'll happen. And then month to month, all right, this is the month that's going to happen. And so uh, the purr, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. And that's what he had to go with. And uh, of course it was very fortunate for the Jewish people because it was nearly a year away and it gave time for the Jewish people to defend themselves. It gave time for them to arm themselves and prepare for the attempted massacre. And you notice the answer, if someone wants to harm you, is not gun control. The answer is defend yourself with more arms than they're coming at. You know, if, uh, if they want to come attack you, great, defend yourself. And you have the right to take whatever they're coming after you with, see. And this is uh, the law of self-defense, and this is, uh, this is what happens. Anyway, it's a good example of that. Pagan nations would rely upon chance. They would rely upon the fates. They would rely upon the goddess of luck. Fortuna was uh, the Roman name for. But Israel would cast lots by faith in the Lord's sovereignty. Israel would cast lots by faith in the Lord's sovereignty. And it's a practice that uh, even continues right up until the day of Pentecost. The last example of this is the selection of Matthias to replace Judas Iscariot as an apostle. And they selected Matthias by lot. And it's the last recorded event in the, in the dispensation of Israel before the church age. It's not done in the church age. And I think that's not accidental either. In the church age, we have the filling of the Holy Spirit. We have the leading of the Holy Spirit. We have the complete canon of Scripture. We have the church age provision whereby uh, there's, I don't think there's a need for the casting of lots in the church age. We have uh, church age believers in wisdom that can come together and seek the wisdom of God on that basis. But the casting of lots, every decision is the Lord's. You submit to the sovereignty of God. By faith, you accept the, the lot as his will and you take it from there. Notice how accurate these other things are. Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. You remember the first battle was at Jericho. The second battle was at Ai. After they cross the Jordan River and they begin the conquest of the land. And, Josh, and Jericho was a tremendous success. Ai was a humiliating defeat. Reason why is because Achan had taken some plunder in Jericho and had hidden it in his tent. He had taken something under the ban. And he thought he was getting away with it, but God knows everything and he's not getting away with anything. And uh, the people are going to be punished for one man's disobedience. And uh, this is all described here. And um, anyway, notice the procedure as they start to investigate. Verse 13 says, rise up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus uh, the Lord, the God of Israel has said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. So in the morning then you shall come near by your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord takes uh, shall come near man by man. And it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. 
he and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. And I love the fact that this is explained the night before that the procedures are spelled out and the nation agrees to it including the guilty party. All right? And he's got a chance to come forward. He has a chance to come forward right now and confess everything and and plead for whatever mercy. And not only does he have the chance the night before, but the next day he has the chance. Step by step by step. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And so all the other tribes are free. Judah now has to come forward by clan or by family. Okay? But at each step of the way, what's Achan thinking? He, he knows he's the guilty party. His wife knows it. His family knows it. The whole tent you know, group knows it. And, uh, you know, is, is one tribe out of 12, is that just a lucky guess on God's part? Nevertheless, could he have just ended the procedure now and come forward, confessed everything, pleaded for his clan, pleaded for his house, pleaded for his children? He stays silent. So then he brought near the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Zerahites, and he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. So each of these steps, he's closing in, he's closing in. Imagine Zabdi now has got to be pretty nervous. Because <laughs> it's somebody in his clan, it's somebody in his family. And he brought his household near man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Abdi, son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, was taken. So this gives us the full lineage on this, not just the father, the grandfather, who is the, the clan uh, chief. They're called the Zerahites because of Zerah. Anyway, the family of uh, Zabdi was taken, and then of his household, Achan, the adult son. He's got wives and kids of his own. Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give praise to him. Tell me now, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. Now he's nailed. He know, He's the guilty party and he knows he's the guilty party. But he's going to at least confess up and admit and tell him where he hid it and things like that. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. And so he talks about it. And then he says, I coveted it. Behold, they're concealed in the earth inside my tent. So verse 21, he tells where you can find it. The silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent. Behold, it was concealed in the tent with the silver underneath it. And so everything's there. The point being, though, the lot works. Drawing lots work. When the consecrated people on a consecrated assembly are dedicating this to the Lord, it works. Same thing uh, in 1 Samuel 14, 41. First Samuel 14, 41. And... Um, Yeah, this is a dumb 
policy that Saul puts into place. And uh, he says, uh, let's see, how much of this do I want to read? Anyway, this is where uh, Saul is going to regret. Um, yeah. Anyway, the uh, the lot is going to find Jonathan in this chapter. First Samuel fourteen forty one. So Saul gives a foolish order. Um, in verse twenty four, the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under the oath saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening. (laughs) Like if you're on an all-liquid diet and you can't eat food until tomorrow. And that's that's, that's, that's horrible. And then you've got to go to war. That's even worse. And I, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies, so none of the people tasted food. Except Jonathan didn't hear about that. So all the people of the land entered the forest and there was honey on the ground. And when people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put a hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore he put out the end of the staff that was on his hand and dipped in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, your father strictly put the people under the oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. So Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes are brightened because I tasted a little of the honey. How much more? If only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Anyway, so this is the foolish order. And then the follow-up to this, you get down to verse 41. Um Let's see here, verse 37, Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Why am I not getting an answer? I should be getting an answer. Saul said, draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate. See how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives, who uh, delivers Israel, though it is Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But not one of all the people answered him. Then he said to Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. I don't think they want to speak up. (laughs) Therefore, Saul said to the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of my staff that was in my hand. So here I am, I must die. (laughs) But the, the, the casting of lots, notice, it pinpointed Jonathan just like that. So Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. In other words, if you kill Jonathan... We're going to take. We're going to kill you. Is what they're saying here. So far from it, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. So I mean, this is this is the popular opinion. Okay, this is uh, ruling with the consent of the governed. (laughs) 
our founding fathers realized this. Ruling with the consent of the governed. And when the people are united of one mind, a ruler, what's he going to do? Kill all of them? What's a tyrant going to do? They said, you're not going to touch one hair of Jonathan's head. And Saul, he wasn't stupid. He was, he was evil and he was, uh, he was, Saul had a lot of issues, but he wasn't a dummy. He wasn't going to kill Jonathan right there and, and, and be murdered by the, by the population. All right, and then finally, Acts 1. This is uh, the selection. Now, some people think this is not valid. And uh, the reason why they say it's not valid is sentimental, really. They, uh, they want Paul to be the 12th apostle. And so they say this casting a lots thing is, is a superstition and it's not right. Well, it's kind of dumb if you get through reading the passages we just read. It's very valid and it does work. And this is what God designed and for Israel and their stewardship to, to, uh, to do. And, uh, and then there's just the text of all. I mean, in the text, it said, um, I mean, Peter's addressing them and they have to replace Judas Iscariot. It's fulfillment of Scripture, quoting there from, uh, from Psalms, let another take his office. And um, so um, one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. Verse 23, they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. And they said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now, if this was wrong, if this was the wrong procedure, and they were praying about it, then God was very capable of saying, all right, stop right now, stop what you're doing. <laughs> he doesn't. So they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. And from this point on, they're the 12 again, and they're the 12 for the rest of the book of Acts. They're the 12. Interesting, too, that's before Pentecost, because after Pentecost, when the church age begins... When uh, the next apostle dies, James gets put to the sword in Acts chapter 12. And look, they don't have to replace James. They don't draw lots again. They don't say, oh, we're back to 11 again. We've got to get back up to number 12 again. That's not necessary. It's only necessary to have 12 apostles of the Lamb before the church age begins. So that once the church age begins, those 12 apostles of the Lamb are the ones that are identified their names being written on the foundation stones there in the, in the heavenly Jerusalem. And it's not Paul. <laughs> there are other apostles besides the uh, apostles of the Lamb. All right. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for these three verses. Uh, we continue to call upon your blessing as we continue to work our way through the book of Proverbs. Thank you for the practicality of the things that we see. We want to be gift givers. We want to be gracious. We want to be generous. We want to get all the facts and not just go with the first impression. We want to investigate everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good. And Father, we just thank you for uh, being in sovereign control of every, every circumstance. There's no luck. There's no chance in your book, Father. You determine what, you, uh, what pleases you. In, uh, in everything. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.